This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. My guest this week is Jim Carroll, a futurist and one-time roadie for the rock band KISS. Jim explains that our future isn't easy. In manufacturing today, a machinist has to be able to do trigonometry in their head. A farmer requires new skills in future tech like AI and drones, maybe robotics. The need to decouple our supply chain has never been greater to limit geopolitical risk, whatever that means. Jim is an international speaker, a prolific writer, and a man of ideas and experience. You won't want to miss this outstanding conversation on our future on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. Make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Jim, one of the things I want to talk to you about first that I love, I've not heard this phrase before. I'm sure once I started doing investigation, I found more instances of it. But I love that you have on your big trends, your 23 trends, I think you call it, um, that you have published on your website. We'll make sure we have a link to that down below, is this idea of techno-skepticism. When you think about that or you have a conversation about that, what does that mean for you? Yeah, well, you know, I started writing this series, um, and you know, there's there's the the blog post there. I, I started it. writing this series in December. Uh, you know, every year I sort of roll. Like, I did 19 trends for 2019, 20 trends for 2020, and 23 trends for 2023. And I was sort of um, starting in December and thinking, like, what is the thing we're going to see uh, unfold in the new year? And you know, I mean, we have to think about what was going on at that moment in time. Crypto was collapsing. Right. Uh, Facebook was, you know, starting to indicate, you know, a significant drop in earnings. Um, there was all this negativity, you know, the layoffs were starting yeah, in, right. in the tech sector. And I mean, I was around for the 2001.com collapse. Uh, I wrote 34 books about the internet in the 1990s and sold a million books. So I saw what happened in, you know, 2001, 2002, right. uh, when everybody became very skeptical about technology. Uh, and, you know, I saw it again in 2008, 2009, you know, with, with the Great Recession. And I just sort of had the same vibes. I, I had a newspaper column in 2001, and my editor killed the column uh, because he said, look, like tech is over. You know, uh, we're, we're, there's not going to be any more big tech stories to come. And what happened after 2001? Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Tesla. I, I, we just, you know, had the, the, this massive explosion. Um, of new tech startups and new tech concepts. So I sort of had the same vibe last December. And I, I think we're seeing it more and more now. People have become really skeptical about technology. And the fascinating thing is that's not slowing technology down at all. It will continue to have bigger implications, more disruption, uh, far more sweeping change. And, and so I, what I'm trying to do is caution people, like, don't turn your mind off to this just like folks did in 2001 who missed out on huge opportunities. Yeah. In 2001, I worked for the University of Texas. Um, I was a IT network person there. And um, the, the skepticism from my perspective then was, you know, gardenstore.com or whatever it is. These are, these aren't real sites. You know, if you just, if you just made something like that, you'd make a fortune. And so the skepticism was, is this web thing really going to be the thing? You know, their Amazon had not um, reached the pinnacle of, there certainly was no cloud or anything like that. 
But the skepticism today that I run into is it's almost like American Congress, <laughs> meaning social media, 53%, I think I, I saw a recent report said 53% of uh, Americans surveyed said social media is a poison. Now they like their implementation. So when I use social me media, and I use social media a lot, I use it to follow my dirt bike racers, my disc golfers, my uh, you know certain my hobbies and interests. I don't talk politics on it. I don't do religion on it, um, unless I'm in a very narrow group that is a kind of a private group that's explicitly for discussing controversial topics maybe, mm -hmm. but with a small group of people that we're aligned in the debate. So we're not going to divide over that, but it's not a public thing. So the skepticism now is, yes, it's layoffs. Yes, it's this other thing, but it's almost, it's almost in my, in my experience, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it's almost like this fear of what are the consequences of these things that we're unleashing. In other words, like they yes. have really far reaching power and we can't, we're not sure what's this going to, how's this going to impact our world? Yeah, there's, there's, uh, I think there's two elements to it. Number one, uh, you know, I mean, I was in the news a lot in 98, 99, 2000, 2001, calling out the dot-com companies. I mean, it was idiotic. Uh, you know, my joke is that the business model is we're going to give stuff away at a loss and make it up in volume. So, you know, pets.com and all that goofiness. <laughs> the stock price run-up was insane. And, right. and so there was a um, some of that parallel with what was happening with NFTs and Bitcoin and crypto and uh, you know, the metaverse and all these things, we had this huge stock run up and people were, you know, get rich quick. And I mean, that obviously collapsed. It had to collapse. I, I had all kinds of video from 2018. I'm on stage telling people crypto is like the dumbest thing unfolding. So there was that element, but the element you're referring to the worrying side of social, the worrying side of AI. I was over in Zurich, um, in October and I was headlining Zurich's insurance global risk conference. And I had in the room, the head of risk management for massive fortune 500 companies. And, you know, my, my point to them was, look, we're now in this world in which new technological risk is coming at us so fast that there's several elements. We don't know what risk it represents. We don't know exactly what it is. Uh, and we don't know what the implications are going to be from a risk perspective. Boom. Uh, you know, a month later, chat GBT arrives and all of a sudden corporations are struggling with these massive new risks. Uh, you know, we've seen we've seen the um, the issue of reputation risk emerge with what is happening with with Twitter today and the whole social media destructive impact. I mean, I've been online for 41 years mm. and I sort of look back at what's going on online. I'm going, whoa, this has gone way too far. I've left Twitter and I've actually created my own little Mastodon in, instance right. uh, running on my own Linux server. And it's sort of like being back in the early days of BBS systems. Yeah. Everybody's nice and we have nice conversations and nobody's screaming at each other and the bots haven't shown up. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think, I think the, the, the techno skepticism comes from two angles and I think it's, it, it, it's, it's rightfully there, but I think what also happens is people lose sight of what is unfolding here and what is unfolding here. Every single industry becomes a technology driven industry. Mm -hmm. And that trend is massive and huge and far reaching. So if you get too far into the skepticism, you're losing sight of, you know, the next new trillion dollar opportunities, which are truly emerging over the next decade. I, it, it is an interesting balance for, I think, turning for human beings, turning off your brain to not engage just means you're receding the direction of whatever the technology to somebody else and maybe somebody that you don't agree with, whether it's for your uh, corporation or for your family or for your congregation or what whatever your community groups are that you participate in 
Um, but there's a, it feels like the hits are coming. You know, we see the impact to um, mental health. We see the impact to um, uh, artificial intelligence that you speak about a lot ha is having a, pr to, to the public anyway, is sort of having this moment. It's kind of, we've been talking about AI for quite a while. I mean, really, at least in my world, eight to 10 years um, and educating the difference between narrow AI and general AI and how these things are m moving from uh, analytics tools to machine learning to AI and all these other things. And then all of a sudden, generative AI shows up in the last six months and it's got everybody's hair on fire. Energy, how tech's impacting energy. So in these big categories, yeah. you see people just reeling like, am I going to open up the, you know, open up my I, my tablet and read again either how somebody's being exploited or somebody's being laid off or a job's going away or, you know, all of this controversy. And, um, and what I'm afraid is that people then just check out and they turn it off and they just, you know, go back to working in their back garden, and which is important therapeutic thing, but don't abandon technology because somebody, not everybody's going to, and you're going to get a future you don't want if you abandon it. Yeah, it's, it's, I write a lot about that. I, I write a lot about, and, and I speak a lot about the attitudes that people have towards the future and technology. And there's always that element that, that, that doesn't like what's happening or does check out. Look, I can tell you when I go on stage in front of, you know, 7,000 people in Las Vegas, I can tell you that 10% of the audience hates me, hates my message, hates everything I have to say uh, because they have checked out and they would prefer that we stay where we were in 1990 or 1950, 1970. Right. Uh, and it is a very real issue. And I think that's a, you know, a little bit of the concern right now because, uh, you know, to a degree, the, the change that technology is going to have on industries going forward is absolutely massive. I can take any industry, whether it's insurance or whether it's healthcare, whether it's automotive, whether it's agriculture, whether it's retail and point to the trends which are turning it into a technology industry. And what that does is it makes Moore's law drive the speed of change in that industry. It causes massive disruption with the emergence of new competitors. It accelerates the skills that are involved. It uh, leads to the in, you know introduction of intelligent connected products. I mean, the implications are massive. So yeah, I mean, it, it, the skepticism is warranted. The worry is warranted. Social media is destructive. But we can't take our eye off the, the longer trends which are unfolding. Yeah. When you talk to audiences, and I I know you do globally, do you find there do you find parts of the world respond differently, or do you find industry responds differently, or do you spot do you find age group defines differently? I guess what I'm wondering is when you, you're getting ready and you step out on stage and you survey your audience. And it's, um, you know, I, either gathered around a topic or that it's gathered around an industry or for whatever reason they're there. In your experience, do you, you know, the, the automakers in Europe respond this way, the automakers in U.S. respond this way or whatever. I'm not trying to pick on any particular group. but do Yeah, you it, 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 it does break down a whole bunch of different ways. I mean, for example, if I've got a room full of baby boomers, I mean, I often will toss out the question, uh, how many of you, the very first computer course you ever took involved learning COBOL, BASIC, or FORTRAN, and all the hands go up. Uh, and, you know, it gives me an opportunity to talk. My hand was twitching. We grew up, <laughs> yeah, I was I was uh, BASIC. <clears throat> we grew up in the era in which technology was ugly, it was scary, it was difficult. We had punch cards, right? Right. And so I, I can build a relationship with them on the technology path different than if I'm in a room full of 25-year-olds. I mean, if it's a room full of 25-year-olds, I have to go at it completely, completely differently because 
a lot of what I'm going to say, they're going to say, well, we knew that already. Tell me something different. So right. I've got to really, uh, you know, take a different approach. I, I regionally, yes, I can tell you that um, uh, we won't get into politics, but yeah. middle America approaches the future in technology very differently from West Coast, East Coast. I can tell you that Asian audiences um, are far more open to accelerating their opportunities for disruption and innovation with technology compared to American Canadian audiences and, you know, to a degree in Europe. So you, you really have to approach each one differently. I did a talk for the World Bank in Morocco just before COVID. Mm. And the topic was the future of manufacturing in third world countries. And you would think that with that type of audience that you're not dealing with a very technologically advanced audience one of the most technologically technologically advanced audiences I've ever dealt with. So yeah, I mean there is very much a regional breakdown and that has economic implications. Yeah. I I just got to speak uh not long ago to a gentleman named uh Gerd Leonard. I don't know if you've ever heard of Gerd. He's Yeah, I know uh, Gerd. He, he and I have done a few uh, events. Yeah, he's uh he cracks me up. He's he's very German now resides in Switzerland, spent time here. And he made this observation. He said, "You know, in Europe, um, and speaking very broadly, not every group in Europe, but in Europe, we sort of like status quo. Like things are very orderly, at least in Germany and um, Switzerland and, you know, some of these Western European countries are very orderly. Things are, um, we, we don't want to disrupt it too much. And so we're not particularly um, eager to go and invent the next thing that's going to disrupt something. And that does not serve us well. Whereas when I go to other parts of the world, either that are impoverished or they just have a culture of, I want to do new, I want to do, I, do, I want to do new. It's a wildly different experience. Yeah, I was actually with the Daimler Chrysler. Remember them? It was oh, yeah, the, yeah. the Mercedes-Benz and Chrysler uh -huh. when they were a merged uh -huh. company. They had me over to Stuttgart, Germany in 2003. And it was a small strategic planning meeting. I had 10 auto engineers from Chrysler. I had 10 from Mercedes-Benz. And I mean, I and I've got video about this where I talk about it. I introduced the concept of, I called it the Google car, but essentially it was predicting the Tesla business model right. that we're going to sell it online. It's going to be batteries. It's going to be electric. It's going to be hyper-connected. You know, it's going to become a, a big computer on wheels. And they laughed at me. <laughs> um, you know, with sort of the reaction that that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Like, that's never going to happen. Legacy auto is always going to be legacy auto, and it's always going to be oil and gas and diesel. So there very much is, I'm always dealing with sort of that skepticism right. of the future itself. So if we layer on top of that, you know, coming back full circle, this idea of techno skepticism, it places people in a, into a very dangerous mindset. Because look what happened. I mean, you know, today, Tesla, it's a computer company that sells big batteries on wheels with like an iPad and they are defining the future of the automotive industry. And every single legacy manufacturer is struggling to keep up. Right. Uh, you know, the irony in that conversation, I think it's really cool today. Mercedes, I believe is the first. Um, so they had that diesel philosophy forever. They've gone to pretty much all electrical. They'll be all electric in the next three or four years yeah. and their autonomous vehicle algorithm i think is the first one approved the highest level tier three approved um by the united states uh transportation agency department of transportation i think that's right they fact yeah and me. they've they've it's 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 interesting you're a tech guy i'm a tech guy if we talk about architecture if we talk about the the importance of building robust reliable um scalable secure um upgradable architecture when you listen to what the mercedes cto is talking about these days 
it's clear he understands the importance of reliable, scalable, upgradable, yeah. secure infrastructure as the backbone to the car, the vehicle of the future they're building. And I was listening and reading what he was writing, and I was going to myself, he finally gets it. Right. Uh, and and I think that's the transition that car, car companies and every company has to make is how do they how do they put in place that CTO mindset that isn't just running uh, you know, the, the server infrastructure data center and all that, but how do we run an infrastructure which really defines the essence of the backbone of what it is we are producing? The, the Mercedes becoming a big computer on wheels. And so we have to approach cloud, we have to approach infrastructure, we have to approach security. All these things on a much more serious level because i mean it's one thing for our you know sap erp to go down it's a whole other thing to bring our entire fleet of uh you know customer vehicles to go down yeah fascinating voyage to watch what's happening with these people as they finally come to recognize the importance of what they're putting in place to me it's double mind-blowing to see mercedes do that because they're in a country in a in a world that is like Gerd said, more status quo minded. And for them to have reinvented themselves, can you imagine that culture war and challenge between the, uh, you know, the people in the hallway, you've got an old school and your new school set and to overcome our own bias of skepticism, which is rightfully one, but you know, we've done it this way. We've done it for hundreds of years. We're or hundred years. We're the leader in innovation when it comes to patents with motor vehicles, and this is the way, and this is the tried and true. And you got the culture pressure, and somehow, and I, I don't own a Mercedes. I think they're beautiful cars. I don't own one, but it's it's remarkable to me to see in the in the midst of techno skepticism for an uh, um, for a culture and an organization to pivot. That's uncommon. Yeah, and that's a it's it's a it's a leadership thing. I mean, the whole German mindset. My wife is a first generation German Canadian, so I get German <laughs> mindset. Organized, hierarchical. You never have anything out of place. Right. But but I think it is a leadership thing. I mean, Volkswagen's another perfect example where Herbert Dice, um, he was the previous CEO. He he took the daring step of inviting Elon Musk in to address his top leadership team, and he said to his top leadership team, "Look, these guys have defined the future of auto. If we aren't willing to listen to him." we're not doing the right stuff. Right. So, so a lot of what I do, I do a lot of CEO level sessions around the world with fortune 1000 organizations. And it's, it's, you know, the CEO will often say to me in advance of it, you can say things to my leadership team that I can't say, right. They need a good reality check on, on what is going on. And so, so dealing with any of this technological transformation has to come from the top, has to come from the board, has to come from the CEO this is this is not something we can dibble around with at the edges and i think you know mercedes volkswagen they're investing billions of dollars into it skills infrastructure architecture scalability upgradable reliability right. all you know all that stuff because they realize this is this is such a huge thing right and they're attracting the talent whatever their age you know a lot of people say well that's just young people whatever their age but but talent that is um buys into that big idea buys into that purpose and that alignment and uh, I don't know how this became an infomercial for Mercedes, but I I, I think it's remarkable <laughs> to see things that are Tesla is remarkable, but they started they, their CEO and they've started off with this, you know, this remarkable sort of commitment to um, disrupt and whatever to see a an organization change itself that has a legacy. IBM's done this in the past that has a legacy that looks like this and say, you know what? We're not giving up. Yeah, we're proud of what we are, where we've been, but that we're not going to 
we're going to readjust for the future. And I, I hope that as we as human beings, in the midst of this malaise, I see it around me all the time of techno-skepticism, whether, it, again, whether it's in our industry, it's in our families, it's in our congregations, it's in our sports communities, whatever it is, not to recognize, not to ignore, rather, the, the consequences of technology um, either incorrectly applied or, or maybe as we, we learn more about them, we learn, oh, we should probably have seatbelts in cars when we first made them or whatever, but not to just check out, just refine well, it. it. Yeah, and the thing is, if you check out at a, at a corporate level, things can go real wrong. So, so let's, you know, right. the IoT, Internet of Things technology, most of the impl implementations so far have been really bad. They've been insecure. They're not upgradable. So there's a post on my site. I wrote it years ago called um, the 11 rules of IoT architecture. If we're going to do an IoT-based product, here's how we need to do it right. And it goes through those 11 elements. And if you look at, at Tesla, They've done those things. Every car is upgradable. Every car is secure. Every car is connected. Every car, uh, you know, you go you go through the list and very few of these IoT products have been done uh, in a similar way. So what do we get? We get security flaws. We get these hack attacks. We get these products which become bricked because the board did not approve the budget for the CTO who was expressing the desire that, look, if we're going to, you know, make an intelligent product, we really have to do it right. And right. I think that's what Mercedes and Volkswagen and others have finally accomplished. If we're going to build the connected car, we got to do it right. Right. Well, I think we spent enough time on techno-skepticism. I want to dive into an area that is absolutely fascinating to me. <clears throat> I've, I, well, I've written on the topic. It was years ago. I'm casually um, aware of it. You speak of it, I think, fantastically. And it is um, the future of what we call, or you call, ag tech, or you know, the technology that's impacting farming and agriculture. How, how do you introduce that conversation? It would seem to me, one of the things that I discovered in my article <clears throat> is that, first of all, most farms, at least in America, are still small farms. Many, of, almost all of them, family owned. I didn't realize by percentage. Um, I thought it was a much larger number, it, um, at least so long as the internet's accurate. I didn't check with chat GPT, but the internet in my search told me that that was uh, true. Um, one of the biggest supply chain problems that they have is people. A lot of their workforce is aging, that a lot of their kids for a while wanted to stay and continue this trend, but now they're attracting more of them back because it's becoming more technology intensive. You could be a tech person. In fact, you have to be a tech person to be part of this world. When you go to have a conversation in this world, how do you start in, 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 if you were to describe somebody that's not familiar with the future of ag tech, how would you explain it to them? When, when, when you're a guy on stage, audiences have changed, right? Attention spans are shorter. So you have yeah. to grab them with a hook. And my hook for um, agriculture to explain agriculture is this right now we farm when the sun is up, but the impact of technology virtualization and the kid playing Farmville today is such that tomorrow we're going to be farming 24 hours a day. We're no longer restricted to farming when the sun is up. Uh, and that is a massive change. That is a, that is a seismic change. Um, and what I often explain is, you know, that kid who's playing Farmville today, we think they're playing virtual games. Right. They're actually learning how to run that 24-hour farm in the future because the 24-hour farm in the future is going to have a lot of autonomous vehicles. John Deere and everybody else right. is bringing that to the world faster than people think. 
a lot of big data, a lot of AI, a lot of hyper connectivity with what we call precision farming, yeah. uh, a lot of sophisticated technology like drone technology. And it's going to be that kid sitting, you know, at a screen like this, you know, with a, with a dozen computers around them and, <laughs> you know, they're, they're pressing the buttons to run all the technology and programming the algorithm to run the combine overnight while they're sleeping. That's going to be with us. And I think that's, that's an example of what happens when technology takes over an industry. And that's the type of trend which is coming to every other industry. So, I mean, agriculture is, you know, a really good example of, of how that's unfolded. Um, before I talk about the farmers themselves, one of the things that's really interesting to me is the amount of science, not just technology, but science that's going into, you know, you've got material science, but you've got chemical science that's coming along to say, how do we get more usage out of this land? How do we condition it better? How do we, when we fertilize, how do we do it in a non-toxic way? Not just to not harm humans, um, but, but so that this, so that the ground, if we're doing 24 hour farming, we're, we're rotating our farming, we're doing new methodologies in farming, not just the, the robotics and the autonomous and the precision, but just the chemistry that we're bringing to it so that we can get higher yield, very, very healthy. Um, we can get better use of the land. Or one of the things you talk about is this idea of vertical farming, which is really blowing my mind. Uh, can you expand upon that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, about a, a half a kilometer. So there's a Canadian thing. So maybe a third of a mile out my back door here. Right. Uh, we've got a vertical farm building. And what it is is a large warehouse industrial facility uh, with stacks and stacks and stacks of shells uh, with a lot of um, sophisticated lighting technology that comes from solar. Uh -huh. uh, so it's low cost, a lot of connectivity. So um, sensors that are measuring the um, temperature measuring the, uh, the soil or water, if it's a hydroponic thing, measuring growth rates, webcams, which are tracking the growth rates of the plants. So, uh, my wife opened the fridge one day and she took out a box of lettuce and she said, this is from the vertical farm down the street. This is a, this is a massive unfolding opportunity. It's driven by global trends. I mean, we're going to have 35 cities, uh, mega cities, which will hold more than 50% of the world's population. I mean, if you've got Accra, Ghana, massive um, uh, city with 50 million people. We can't bring all the food into that city with supply chain. And so the concept is let's grow the food inside the city and eliminate a lot of that. So there's a lot of sort of third world um, demands that are driving this trend, but it's meeting up with the acceleration of the technology behind it uh, and meeting up with, you know, this big, bold thinking thing that we, you know, we talk about. And I, I think, you know, we're sort of in the early days like this. It's a little bit like the dot-com years. There's been some hype and some failures and people are skeptical, but I always put the longer term trend on it. You know, the Gartner hype cycle, right? right. And long term, I think vertical <laughs> farming ha just has a massive, massive implication. And in the post I wrote about it, I mean, the, the numbers, the statistics behind it uh, are just absolutely staggering to think about what we can produce on one acre of indoor land compared to one acre of outdoor land. I heard somebody related, they were in the real estate industry, and so they weren't terribly sophisticated in this area. It was more of a hypothesis for them, but it seems like it, it rings true and resonates with what you're saying, which is, what are we going to do with all this Class B warehouse space? What are we going to do yep. with office space? People, I know you've talked about this in work trends, don't really want to come back to work that they they did before. <clears throat> um, they want to work remote. They want to work as we resolve isolation things. So they don't want the COVID experience where I'm 
in my shed in the backyard or I'm in a room downstairs and I'm 100% isolated. But in terms of coming to work, if I can produce um, value for the organization, either as an individual contributor or as a leader, bring real value, real tangible results, and I can do it in a quality of lifestyle that looks like this, I don't want to go in the office. I, half of the people, now I love coming to the office. I love coming to the studio it, for all those reasons, but kind of like I have somebody mow my lawn. I can't stand to mow my lawn. My neighbor loves to mow his lawn. It's his Zen place. So whatever. I don't want to dis, um, block people from going into the office. I happen to like it, but most people like more flexibility and go in the office. And so what they, he, this real estate person was talking about was we have all of this infrastructure that we don't want to abandon and watch go and decay. And if we can apply, for example, future farming to these things, um, even if it's just a component, it's the courtyard of an old abandoned mall that's now a work, play, live kind of thing with whatever. The, this is the way they're imagining. Now, the time frame, he said, I don't know, but I don't think I'm wrong. I may be early in when, it, you know, in guessing when it's going to happen, but I do believe it's going to happen, that it's going to be some symbiotic relationship, whether it is a a building or a series of buildings amongst a bunch, or it's a big purpose building that has people living it and then doctors in there and farming and all these other things, that feels very much like what we're going to look like, maybe not in five years, but over the next decades, 15 years or less, 10 years or less, this is for sure going to be a trend. And this is a real estate person just listening to investors and people that are talking to them about how to repurpose these assets. Yeah, I've got this, I've got this absolutely massive, massive post about vertical farming. And, and, you know, I go into all the statistics and I mean, the statistics, it, you know, it reduces land use by 90 to 99%. Uh, one acre of, uh, can take up 40 square meters of ground space, but can produce the same amount of plants as a hundred thousand square meters on a traditional farm, 90% less water. I mean, the numbers are absolutely <clears throat> compelling. Look how, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on. Um, this is this is one of those trends, but I always go by the the Gartner vertical hype cycle. Uh, you know, a trend appears, people get wildly excited about it. They get carried away with the hype and the hysteria around it, and then they begin to realize, whoa, it's going to take a little while to make it work. And so we have the collapse, the techno skepticism. But in the meantime, the trend doesn't go away. People figure it out, yeah. and all of a sudden, it turns into this massive, huge trend. And I think that's what's unfolding with vertical farming. The the fun thing about vertical farming. If you want to have some fun with people, bring it up and the skepticism in people that comes out, it's, I mean, it's just, it's wild. Yeah. Um, people hate the audacity that you would propose such a dumb idea. Uh, and in the meantime, you're sitting there and you know, the statistics of what it represents. And yeah, I mean, that's what I have to deal with as a futurist is audacious ideas and people discounting them because they can't, they can't, uh, you know, evolve their minds fast enough to think about where we're going to be five, 10, 15, 20 years of. Yeah. If you're if you're a little way in front of them, I've heard this said, not my original idea. Um, they think you're a genius. If you're too far ahead, yeah. you're a madman. And if you're really far ahead, you need to be burned at the stake. You know, you're just uh, you're a heretic. It's a it is a it's a dangerous role you play there, um, Jim. But uh, I'm. We, we, yeah, go ahead. I, 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 yeah, I mean, I used to obsess over it. I mean, I used to, you know, come off stage and, you know, you see the reviews, you, you see the audience reviews and you always have that little five or 10%, you know, like who invited this guy in and right. like, what an idiot. And I used to obsess about that. And then I just realized that's who they are. I yeah. mean, they're, they're, you're not going to reach those people because they despise the future. They just want everything to stay the same. Right. Because it's safe. You know, we don't like, um, 
we don't like as human beings. It's our nature. I have to guard myself against it. On the one hand, I don't want to adopt every idea because there are a lot of ideas that should fail out there. Either they're before their time or the consequence of them is too great or, or maybe they're just a bad idea. Um, but there are other things that I, I, I try to force myself to critically think through this. How could it benefit? What would be the risk? Do I need to adopt it now? Or is it just something I need to keep my eye on? And um, one of the things, we're not going to talk about electric cars today, but I have a number of people that have come on the show that own electric cars, love electric cars, are 100% for electric cars, what they're against. Um, and these tend to be left-minded by the way we define uh, politics mm-hmm. in the U.S., left-minded people, left-leaning people politically. <clears throat> but they're more libertarian like me in this area, which is if we were to force in certain cities today electric car adoption, just period, just blanket, well, the infrastructure we have just can't handle it. And so the consequence of forcing everybody to do electric right now with the way that we have our transformers in our neighborhoods or whatever – would have catastrophic uh, consequences. We're all on board with removing gas stations mm-hmm. from our neighborhoods and fossil fuel and the negative consequences. Um, so they're like, look, let's let the market and let's um, let's help fund the innovation to build these things and to tweak it and, and understand how fire departments are going to be equipped to deal with lithium ion battery and all of this other stuff. And let's do it with a sense of urgency. Like this, we need to have a sense of urgency. But to, um, but to force it, can have unintended consequences and it it, it reminds i'm not necessarily applying it to farming but it reminds me that um there's we should encourage innovation we should encourage development i think it's a right idea to spend time and money in this but sometimes when we try to mandate some of these things i could see where people would feel very um uh you know less than optimistic skeptical about how this would play out i'm curious how do the farmers themselves feel about vertical farming or some of the innovation? Do you find that most of them are wildly optimistic or are they like, hey, we've done this for 10,000 years. We don't need to do it that way. That's a good question. I mean, when I I, uh, released my vertical farming post, I put it out on uh, social media and there was one fellow, a a Dutch farmer um, who read it and he came back at me, you know, with a horrific attitude. This is dumb. This is stupid. It's the Dutch. Come on. Um, I thought like, okay, I'm not reaching this guy, particularly (laughs) when in Rotterdam Harbor, we have some very sophisticated vertical farms and, um, uh, cattle farms in the middle of a ship in Rotterdam Harbor with, you know, so the, the attitude towards it depends on the type of farmer. And I've long realized that, there's different types of farmers out there. They're, 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 you know, it's a good way to break down what happens in every industry. There's, there's, I use this story on stage a lot. Even mm-hmm. if I'm with a manufacturing group or a healthcare group, I talk about the fact there's two types of farmers and there's those who are negative about the future. They're apathetic. They think there's no future in the industry. They're ready to sell their farm. They're, they're sick of all the new ideas and the tech and stuff. And they're actually a minority. If you, if you talk to, um, the agricultural companies, uh, they will talk about there's the very future positive farmers. They're collaborative for advice. They're willing to try anything. They know they're in the risk business. They know there's a flood of new ideas and technologies and methodologies and big data coming at them. And they're sort of like, bring it on. I want to try that stuff. And they're actually, you know, they're a fascinating group and they are very much the majority. And I don't think a lot of Americans and Canadians understand that. I, I think we have sort of have this view of the farmer from you know like green acres and you know the 1950s farmer and i mean these are some of the most sophisticated innovators on the planet uh so some of them 
are very open to the idea of vertical farming. There's still others that are, oh, well, you know, you'll never scale it. We'll never see scale. Right. Um, I, I, and to me, that's the timing issue. So much of my time on stage with the CEO events I do, it talks about the issue of timing. We know what trends are going to unfold. Maybe the most important thing we need to do is develop a good capability to assess the timing of how and when they are going to unfold. Yeah. And that's what vertical farming is all about. Yeah. The numbers are compelling. The architecture is compelling. The technology is compelling. It's, it's that scaling issue that you just referenced with electric cars, you know, that is the big issue, which we are learning about and which will take some time. Yeah. One of the things that I've discovered in reading up about um, the future of farming is how many pieces of technology and innovation come together and the complexity of the environment until we move to a maybe a if not a primary vertical farming certainly a significant portion we still have regular fields and so as i was doing this research imagine you're a technologist that works with drones and autonomous vehicles and uh, robots you know scrolling or patrolling your um your crops looking for weeds or vermin or uh, pests or whatever all these different things trying to do that in an environment that's constantly changing you have different weather environment that you have to work in you've got heat that changes throughout the day you've got optics that change throughout the day and you got to operate within this world and um and as I learn more, they now have drones that can go out there. You have tools that can go out there and do a LIDAR scan of the, of the field. You can, uh, well, you could, you can explain it more to me on the potential of well, some yeah. of this stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, my, 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 my 29-year-old son is a drone pilot. I mean, now he works for a commercial <laughs> industrial real estate company. So he can fly a building, for example, with his $100,000 infrared camera, and he can do a heat analysis. So he can prepare in 10 minutes um, a, a digital map of the building, 3D digital twin, with all the areas of heat loss and the elements of heat loss. So uh, very sophisticated stuff. But for a time, he ran his own company for two years and he would do agricultural flyovers and he could read the the soil moisture level. He could highlight disease. He could pinpoint water runoff issues. He could pinpoint irrigation weakness issues. I mean, he used to fly golf courses uh, and do the same thing in terms of fairways and, and you know, drainage. And the whole issue of drones is is you know brings together several things accelerating technology big data analytics the ability of tools to interpret this data tying it into existing sophisticated tools such as what's going on with ArcGIS and digital twin technology just magical stuff happening there and the impact of that in the world of agriculture is profound and you, you tie in other trends i mean i talk a lot about micro weather there's a, a company called DT, dtn agriculture which brought me in to talk to 500 farmers and you know i was explaining to them with 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 micro weather i mean we're almost to the point of being able to engineer a different seed varietal for western iowa that is different from the microclimate of uh western iowa or central iowa i mean it, there's so much sophistication going on in this industry and this is an industry in which we do have a large number of people who are like i said that mindset bring it on we, we you're hearing about something called the right to repair mm. trend and that is a lot of farmers have figured out how can i hack the john deere tractor to do things that you know are <laughs> inherent to what the machine is and if i hack this chip i can you know get additional capabilities well john deere you know sort of tried to shut that down and they've banded together and got the attention of congress and senate to 
sort of reverse that. I mean, what what's happening here is that younger generation comes in who grew up on computers and technology and chips and Farmville and right. League of Legends and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, they're, they're going, wow, like tech and farming, this is a marriage made in heaven. Let's see where we can take this. It's a magical industry with so much technology going on. And when you proselytize that message like that, I mean, they're essentially, while they're farming, they're also part of the digital infrastructure of the world. And you, yeah. you cannot be part of the modern society unless you have electricity, connectivity, and digital infrastructure to, to bring it together. And um, in every way, it's beneficial. And if you can cap, cast that vision why, with one of the most important, whatever else our tech is, if we don't have the ability to feed ourselves, it's all for not. And so uh, it seems such a natural progression yeah, and I did I did a ton of research for this vertical farming post and and I mean I pulled it together on this one long lengthy blog post so that's in that 23 where it's in my big trends um trend series. Uh -huh. And I mean the numbers are just they're they're so compelling you read that stuff and I mean I was getting excited I've been talking about it already for years but I'm reading the latest numbers and just going oh, wow this is this is one of those trends uh which is just so significant and so few people in the world realize um, what's out there. And then there's those who are just inherently skeptical of what it is. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing unfolding. When I first got into gaming and built my own computers in the early mid nineties up into the early two thousands, um, one of our big things was getting Intel processors that could be overclocked. You could get into the yep. bias of your computer and overclock them. So you could buy a very inexpensive, I think it was called a Celeron at the time, disk or a chip, and overclock it to run much faster. And I remember there's a bunch of pushback from the chip manufacturer because they wanted to sell you the more expensive disk. Yep. They didn't want you to have the ability to overclock it. And the group, you know, people rebelled. And part of that rebellion, not completely for this reason, but in part for this reason, went AMD sprung up. Other manufacturers came up and said, hey. We'll make them overclock friendly. We'll give you technology. If this is how you want to do it, we'll give you the ability to do it. And later, Intel and other chip manufacturers backed off, and they allowed it. NVIDIA allowed it um, uh, on their uh, um, video cards and other, because they recognized, look, these tinkerers, these gamers, not all of them, but many of them are early adapters, and they'll go out there and overclock. They're also a great source for teaching us what our chips can and can't do. Yeah. I, I, I love the story of the, I think it was a Linksys router um, and people discovered that if you, if you um, managed to get SSH access into it and you could do some things and you could turn it into a full fledged Linux server that you could boot up and run Ubuntu and, right. you know, for like, you know, for like 20 bucks, you could buy yourself something you could turn into a full server. I mean, I love that type of stuff. And right. yeah, I mean, technology companies have tried to fight back against customers enhancing and exploring your product. But, you know, I think over time they're coming to realize, Hey, this is, this becomes a value proposition. And appreciate the irony because the founders of those tech companies were the people that were breaking this yeah. stuff 20 years we're ago. Hacker, we're that hacker in the garage <laughs> and just... hacker being used there, you know, talking to a cloud company right. as, a, as a good person, not the nefarious, nefarious, right. you know, That's a wide hat. hacker, but yeah. somebody, somebody who's doing, you know, good hacking to right. discover, you know, the, the things that we have in our uh, universe. It, it, it just, uh, I, I, I. well, we have a little bit of time left. I'm really curious about this idea and maybe we can expand it next time we talk, but I, I really want to tackle it if we can. You have this fascinating conversation um, that I've heard 
but I haven't paid attention to about decoupling. It's one of your trends, this idea of decoupling. Can you explain what you mean by sort of this big idea of decoupling and why you came to uh, include that in your list? Yeah, the whole the the, the whole is decoupling of a deep potential decoupling of globalization. So the whole post-war economy was, you know, Asia for production, global supply chains, you know, the idea that, you know, a factory somewhere in the world could get a product within 24 hours to any other point in the world. I mean, that's been the driving thing right. of, of, you know, so many industries and so much of what is happening with the offshoring of manufacturing and such. I think COVID, you know, obviously in all the supply chain was laid bare the, the potential fallacies of <clears throat> such an interconnected system. And so there is a lot of talk on, you know, can we bring some of that manufacturing back? Um, what would be involved? How do we do it? The interesting thing about that is while that discussion is unfolding, um, two things are happening. Number one, we don't, what we haven't done in, in Canada and um, in the US, North America, we haven't trained manufacturing workers with the necessary skills to run the advanced manufacturing process of the 21st century. Mm. The, the other part of this is I think manufacturing organizations it's just I'm in a discussion right now with about a potential event for Dubai World Airports uh, next month to talk about this specific trend. Manufacturing organizations have learned how to shift their facilities faster. So if we were producing in China, we can move it to Pakistan. If we were producing in Pakistan, we could move it to Mexico. It used to take years to make that type of big manufacturing transition. But I think we've learned a lot about how to do that faster. So the world agile, we use the word agile right. a lot, you know, in terms of software development, they're developing um, manufacturing relocation agility. That's a significant trend. And yeah. so I think what is unfolding here is we're beginning to question, you know, what we've done with globalization and the risks that is presented. We're confronting the skills issue and that's coming up against a manufacturing sector, which is by and large learned how to move things around faster. And if that's what's unfolding, how can we take advantage of that trend? Yeah. Um, I think we're in early days of this yet, but I think it's one of the most compelling trends to watch because it has such massive um, global economic implications. One of the things when you write about that I read that I thought was really interesting, it's interesting to me in particular because I've, I've heard some version of this, maybe uh, more extreme, but it is this idea that you've got of friend sharing. And the way that I understand it is, Look, if I if a if a key part uh, a key product antibiotics uh, I don't know something that most Americans I mean since I'm an American I'll talk about it from an American perspective when we when we came when we felt pressure because we went to the pharmacy or we we went to get something other than energy and it wasn't readily available and then as we learned wait a minute that's made somewhere else in the world. Everybody immediately, just like we've been talking about, said, well, we need to manufacture that closer to home. That's super important. And one of the discussions I've heard is, um, is this idea of, well, you don't necessarily have to make it in Ohio if you can make it in Toronto, because we, whatever else the occasional flare-ups between Canada and America are, we, they really are, they're not just our neighbors, they're our cousins. Like we are, we are intermarried, we are interrelated, we are very closely aligned in so many areas. Um, and to a certain extent, Mexico. And so if it's here within our continent, if it's here uh, with our friends, and we believe that we are more or less like-minded in how we see the world, 
a lot of people in my circle are like, well, well, I'm fine with that being manufactured there if it if it makes more sense to do that than in Vermont or Mississippi or whatever. Um, but I don't want it. Uh, I feel very uncomfortable if I think it's more than a continent away, either for transportation reasons or it's a geopolitical uh, yeah. group that I'm I don't feel like has our long term interests, our intermarried interests at heart. Whatever our border squabbles are, um, there's a degree of difference. Is that your experience or, or is that what you mean when you talk about friend sharing in your article or do you mean something different than that? Yeah, no, it, friend sharing is a whole thing of, of, of trying to reduce or minimize geopolitical risk and, and the, you know, the volatility that comes with, with you know, sudden massive geopolitical upheaval. Um, and, you know, I mean, as a Canadian, I, you know, I, I will admit we were absolutely mystified when, you know, all this NAFTA bashing was going on because, I mean, if, if you know, 60 kilometers south of me here is the uh, peace bridge between, you know, Niagara Falls and Buffalo, New York. And, right. You know, 200 kilometers that way is Detroit and, and um, Windsor. And, right. you know, the typical automotive part goes back and forth across that border 14 times, um, you know, for right. final assembly. Our, our economies are so integrated. It's, it's staggering. So, you know, I think that the wild upheaval of the last few years has sort of raised this concept of friend shoring to the forefront in the context of geopolitical risk. And like, let's not beat up on our friends. It's not a not a good thing. Right. I'm wavering into politics here. But, I, you know, I think I think really what's what's unfolding here is we've built up this massive system of globalization. We're beginning to question, are there ways we can do it better? And that involves a whole bunch of things from geopolitical to uh, skills to other things. And I think with that is coming the recognition that we have not done the right thing from a skills perspective. There's a quote I use from a, a robotics manufacturer out in Davenport, Iowa, hmm. that they observed that the typical machinist today, the manufacturing process has become so sophisticated, it's almost as if they need to be able to do trigonometry in their heads. Hmm. So as we bring in AI, as we bring in more robotics, as we bring in 3D printing, as we bring in you know, more sophisticated manufacturing assembly lines. We bring in digital twin technology, which is a whole other aspect of the manufacturing process. We don't have the workers who have the skills to do that. We've talked about that forever. We've tried to ignore that issue. We've tried to make it go away. And so now that sort of the chickens are coming home to roost, as we talk about deglobalization and realizing, well, we really don't have the people who can help us do this. So again, it's it's the timing of the trend. The trend is very much there. The realization of the opportunity is very much there. And you know, with that comes, okay, what do we need to do to actually make it happen? So as a futurist that is trying to persuade people to be optimistic and engaged, if we want to bring, in this case, manufacturing sector back, instead of throwing up our hands and saying, we don't have the people, how do you encourage your audience members, my audience members, to get people to one, shift their mind so that they're, they're optimistic, and two, to be able to go out into the world and proselytize the good news of, look, come and join this. You want a job? You want something that is, um, I don't want to say recession proof, but something that is resistant to the disruption and the upheavals? There's opportunity. Come and um, join that. I heard somebody recently yeah. talking to my kids said, they said, oh, you should consider being a programmer. And one of my daughters said, well, I'm not a programmer. I'm, I think more like this. And that person said, but I, I know you. I've seen you solve puzzles over and over and over. You love puzzles. Yeah. And you love this sort of this linear thought and this linear tracking. Yeah, that's a programmer. 
You should, you should venture into this world and experiment with it and see you program in your Minecraft games and in these other things and your uh, uh, roadblocks and your whatever. Come and see if this could, you may find a whole career for you. How do you, how do you help people capture that, um, uh, that perspective? I, I I, I always I always go to the trends. I'm quote, I'm a futurist. And right. so I can give you two examples. Racine, Wisconsin, which was going to have that um, Foxconn plant. Yeah. They were going to bring in Foxconn and they were going to manufacture chips there and do all these things and you know, billion dollar plan. And I mean, I predicted that as a failure. There's a blog post on my site just predicting like this isn't going to go. This is going to fail because the expectations are too high. They're thinking it's too easy and so on. Uh, the Nevada Economic Development Corporation had me in for a talk um, probably about five or six years ago. And this is when Tesla was, you know, first putting out, you know, where are we going to locate our big battery plants, which mm -hmm. eventually went to Reno, Nevada. Uh, and, you know, they were looking at the Racine, Wisconsin, Foxconn story. And what I did for them was, you know, painted the picture. Here's 20 trends uh, which are going to provide real economic opportunity in manufacturing and aerospace and technology and so on. And think about those trends. Think about the skills implications. Think about what companies might be involved. Think about the disruptive trends occurring. You've got to start with the trends. You can't think it's easy. You have to you know, put a stake in the ground. I, I, I get very frustrated when I'm dealing with folks who think that the future is easy and, you know, the, the, the whole crypto thing and, you know, run some Bitcoin, you're going to become a billionaire and right. like that type of stuff just drives me mad. The future is hard work. It takes effort. It involves understanding the trends, you know, accepting the effort that you need to get there. So I, I paint out a practical yet optimistic picture. One of my jokes when I go on stage is, you know, I can't walk out here on stage and say, guess what? Your future sucks. Cause I won't get a lot of repeat business. Right. I have to be an optimist. I have to, you know, paint myself with a mind of optimism and to do that, you go to the trends. And so you, you identify the big trends like vertical farming and positive, ag you know, agriculture and, right. you know, robotic manufacturing, 3d printing, all these things. It's construction. We are now able to 3d print in concrete. I yeah. mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating trend. So let's, Focus on the trend, focus on the opportunity, focus on the upside, yeah. and focus on what it's going to take to get us there. We've got to have 3D printing people on the program a number of times where they're experimenting with 3D printing food for NASA. They're printing 3D concrete buildings. Just the 3D printers, that how yep. they've evolved in the last 24, 36 months. They've got them deployed to Madagascar and other places. And it's just where governments are embracing, hey, look, we need you to help build schools for us. We need to do these things. I need you to train my people. One or two people can literally build these solar powered. And they're a form of concrete. It's not exactly concrete. It's much more environmentally yep. friendly that they've made. But it's phenomenal how the people that have, in fact, I think the innovators are people that have come from uh, outside of America that are here now, live here now. From, o from Chicago, if I remember correctly, working with an adopted orf Chinese orphan girl from Colorado, how they all came together because they're like-minded in their 20s and 30s, licensed architects, all these other innovation people, and now they're building these global things. And when I see people coming together with those ideas and building that stuff, man, it dispels yeah, my pessimism. I it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I just keynoted the Iowa Housing Authority Conference in Des Moines. Uh, and I was all over methodology of what's occurring in the world of construction. Right. I mean, it, and it, it, same type of story, massive inroad of technology, massive inroad of new science, new materials, um, new methodology, 3D printing. And 
I, I had in my uh, a deck and in my keynote a bunch of examples of companies that are doing things for fast fabrication uh, because the focus of the conference was how do we build more affordable social housing for those less fortunate in, in, right. in uh, the state of Iowa. And I had all these examples of companies. There's actually companies in North Dakota which are doing fascinating 3D printing or faster prefab of, of construction uh, for home materials. I mean, you can take any industry and there's so much innovation occurring out there. Uh, I mean, for me, I just get excited, about, <laughs> you know, seeing some of the stuff that's going on, but I get frustrated by those who turn their minds against it. Yeah. Well, I know we're out of time. Uh, two quick things. One, Racine, Wisconsin, greatest band to ever come out of there, the Bodines. Uh, I was a big fan of them in the 80s, uh, kind of a not quite punk rock, but uh, really cool American uh, rock band. And my great-grandfather helped build most of Davenport, Iowa. And the only thing I didn't like about that was when we would go back for Thanksgiving for family vacations, it's fertilizer season. I don't know if you've ever been to yes. Iowa yeah. during fertilizer season, but your Big Mac tastes like cow stuff. And my grandmother yeah. laughed at me and said, it tastes like money. So whatever. But it was uh, for a kid from California, it was not a great experience. Yeah. To the, uh, to the point about the Bodines, two uh, short musical things. Jim Carroll Band. I'm not that Jim Carroll. People confuse me with him. Uh -huh. uh, people who died, Jim Carroll Band, uh, author of the Basketball Diaries. Uh, I own the domain name, and so people come to me and think I'm him. Uh -huh. um, the, the second rock and roll thing, I was a roadie for Kiss for two concerts. Were you? Can't you? Beat that. Um, oh, how you know, fun. This was the, uh, this was the uh, I think it was the 1985 <laughs> tour, and I got to hang out backstage, um, you know, with the groupies and see everything. The seeing things that a 15-year-old should not have seen. Yeah, a well. Fascinating uh, voyage in my life. But they're good stories for now. Yeah. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. When it, So we're going to include links down below, but can you tell if people want to connect with you or read more about what you're about, how can they do that? Uh, it's all at jimcarroll.com. That's two R's, two L's, dot C-O-M. Uh, and I've also got a new little microsite, jimcarroll.ai. I think AI obviously is going to be the topic of 2023. Uh, I'm seeing corporate groups coming to me saying like, we, we understand there's a lot of tech happening here. We need a plan. We need a strategy. We right. need to approach it in a rational way. So jimcarroll.com or jimcarroll.ai, all these things on vertical farming and um, you know, the big future and 23 trends for 2023. I, I blog a lot. Um, yeah. I just love writing. I put a little daily inspiration post every single day that's full of uh, trend stuff or inspiration stuff or disruption stuff or innovation stuff. Okay. Uh, it's, it's all right there, jimcarroll.com. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And for you, if you've enjoyed the conversation, please like it. And if you love it, subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody on the QTS experience. Take care. <laughs>